You're listening to The Healthy Sensitive. Welcome everyone to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast for highly sensitive beatniks and creative renegades and curiosiverts, people who are just oriented toward curiosity. My name is Leah Burkhart, and today I'm planning on speaking about, well, I mean, the podcast is called The Healthy Sensitive, so I think it's pretty clear I'm preoccupied with health. My preoccupation is now focused, like many people all over the globe, and many of those people in my own borders, uh, the, the health or lack thereof of my country. I, like many people, got to watch the live footage on Wednesday's debacle and was horrified. And I don't think I'm alone uh, in my horror. The reasons for my anger and frustration may be different than some others. They may be looking at different angles of what happened, but I think if there's one thing that most Americans share, it's disgust at what occurred. So then why spend time talking about it when it's kind of getting overdone? Because I don't know how to not talk about it, frankly. And also, I'm bemused while in the midst of my horror by... It's, it's a really odd sensation to watch people when they are clearly hijacked. And what seems to me like an inability to be level-headed and discerning about how we take in information, how we interpret the information that we do take in, also uh, how we then, in, after our interpretation, project our assumptions onto other human beings. That in my view, is the greatest danger of where we're at right now. But I'll get into that. Really, the episode, I've titled it Patriotism, Nationalism, and Bias. Quite frankly, I'm talking about the mess we're in. To begin, therefore, I'm going to... I'm actually going to do something that many of you might get really bored with. Uh, A good number of people are very familiar with I I would venture to argue the majority of people are relatively familiar with how our government operates, but perhaps it's on more of a superficial level. So they have a general idea of how things are set up, but maybe don't know the particulars. In my case, I happen to have gotten a degree in politics and economics before having steered into health education. And my journey on that has been mentioned in previous episodes. And I won't spend too much time on that now. Suffice it to say that the political, I don't want to call myself necessarily an activist, but the political detective in me, that part of me that's intrigued by how all of this unfolds, couldn't help but notice when people around me, extremely well-educated people, mind you, have been brave enough to admit they're not totally familiar with they understand that what happened on Wednesday is wrong, but the aftermath of it and, and getting 
fully comprehending wait what's on the table the 25th the impeachment what is what does impeachment actually mean uh why is that something we're even considering right now what's going on here so i thought i would start by spending some time and i i'm i'm gonna say this is a joke but i don't know how much humor i'm really putting into it if there are any listeners on this podcast who are not citizens of the united states of america i in my experience in traveling and now mind you when i've tra- when pe- when people travel generally speaking the kinds of people who travel tend to be the kinds of people like you're they're correlated with the type of person who's curious about how other nations work how other cultures work so that i think is a a bias if you will but at any rate in my experience when i've traveled abroad a good chunk of those that I've met in other countries have known a considerable about more about my country than those who live in my borders. So some of you may be surprised by the fact that I'm going over this teeny little lesson. I think a good number, though, I would venture to argue a majority may, and you can do it guiltily, no judgment, may actually sit down and say, yeah, I would kind of like a little bit of a refresher. (laughs) How exactly does all of this work? So if you're bored and miserable and don't want to hear this because you were awake during your civics civics class in high school or your history class and whatever, feel free to skip this part. But I'm going to begin by talking about the three branches of government. Yeah, that's right. I'm going there. Go ahead and push the snooze button, folks. Don't care. So just to be clear, in the United States government, there are three branches. There's the legislative branch. That branch of government includes two branches underneath that. So there are 535 members in Congress. 435 of them are House representatives, and 100 of them are senators. Those who are in the House of Representatives serve two-year terms, there are no limitations on the number of terms that they can serve, but they do need to go out for re-election every two years. In the senator's case, uh, they serve six years, and they're stagnated in the Senate. So as I understand it, only about a third of the Senate is up for re-election at any given time. So when you say, when people say Congress, it's really easy to just say, oh, that you, that bad Congress. But, you know, when people say, oh, well, Congress never gets anything done. Well, okay, maybe. But um, the founders sort of wanted it that way. So when you have 535 people, it is going to be a challenge to get them all on board to advocate for the same policy. And the founders were kind of, I think, shooting for that. They wanted to make it difficult for people to just willy-nilly sign different things into law, which... Now that I'm talking about laws, Congress's job. The, the job of the legislative branch is to create law. That's what they do. They make laws. They write them. They sign off on them. Now, that's the legislative branch. Next, you have the executive branch. The executive branch does include the president, but it's not just the president. So the president of the United States certainly sits at the top, but... Other people that are included in the executive branch in government include governors. So each governor of each state in the United States of America represents a kind of president of that state. And then go below that and now you have mayors. Each mayor is the mayor of a city 
and they are the president of that city. I'm using that term because it's generally easier to track and follow. So those are all executive members of our government. Their job is to enforce the laws that have been written. And finally, we have the judicial branch of government. Their job is to scrutinize all of the laws that are passed. So uh, as an example, when California put forth a law, the Proposition 8 law that banned uh, homosexual marriage, that law went through, you know, people in California sued. They went to their Supreme Court justices in the state and said, we would like to overturn this. And the state sent it up and up and up. And so it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court looked at the law and said, I acknowledge that the law was created legally. And also, you don't get to have it because it's unconstitutional. Which brings me to the Constitution. The Constitution is rich with amendments that the judges are using to discern the validity of a law that's been passed. Their idea is to try and use the language written by the founding fathers in that constitution to identify when there's been an issue that's been that's been brought up. There's also some confusion in the Supreme Court as an example why there's so much emotion involved with Supreme Court justices that get nominated. First of all, oh, I should also say in the executive branch in government uh, the President of the United States can only serve two terms, and each of those terms is four years. So that's distinct, by the way, from the legislative branch, who can serve as many terms as they like, but they do have to run for office. So they got to earn their keep. The President, two terms, four years each, and now you're in judicial land, where once a Supreme Court justice has been placed in his seat, he or she can be there for the rest of their lives. It was a lifetime commitment. So you can understand why people would be uh, concerned if someone they didn't like was sitting on that seat. There's not really a whole lot of avenues to get them out of that seat. And it was done that way intentionally because I think the philosophy is someone needs to be in a seat for a long period of time and needs to be insulated from, say, mob rule. And they need to just be allowed to do their jobs and identify when a law is or is not constitutional. It's that simple. That's my overview of the three branches of government. I'm starting there <laughs> because it's useful to have that background when I go into the more abstract concepts and then go back into the details of where we're at and why people are asking for what they are asking for and why there are some that are resisting. Okay. So now let's go to patriotism. I promised I'd talk about it and here I am talking about it. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about what it means to be a patriot. I imagine that's a discussion that happens within the borders of many countries. What is a patriot? And how does that distinguish itself from say a nationalist? Is nationalism and patriotism the same thing? I would argue no, but I'm certainly open to having anyone come up and debate me on it. I, I, I this that I'm about to say, I, the formal definition of patriotism is pretty simple. It's just the quality of being patriotic. or So it's devotion to 
and vigorous support for one's country. It's that simple. But I think it's worth doing a little bit more teasing out of what it should mean. In my view, and this is my view now that we're getting into, patriotism has a, a multitude of layers that needs to be peeled away. And in my view, patriotism comes about similarly to parenting. How do we parent our children well? How do we know when it's appropriate to reprimand them? How do we know when it's appropriate to teach them? How do we know when it's appropriate to reward and serve? It's the same idea, except we're parenting a country. <laughs> um, we are stewards of this country. The goal in its creation was to be something that would withstand the test of time and withstand the test of multiple lifespans of flawed people. It's a pretty tall order. Uh, and that's the goal of any nation that's crafted and, and the borders are drawn around and all that. So in my view, in trying to tease out these layers, you have sort of the superficial to begin with, that being, you know, waving a flag of your country or, I don't know, where sporting the colors of your country, celebrating on your country's Independence Day, putting out fireworks, not putting out, that makes it sound like, or, you know, celebrating with fireworks. Fourth uh, of July is a big one in the U.S., of course. That's, in my view, sort of the superficial example of patriotism. And when I say superficial, I don't mean it in a derogatory way. I just mean quite much the same way as doctors use the word superficial when describing different layers of the body. The skin is the most superficial, meaning the most surface level. That's waving a flag on my front porch. You go a little deeper, though, and maybe below that is your willingness to uh, step up and perform your duties. In the United States, I think there's not a whole lot of duties that we have to fulfill for our country, not at least that are mandated. Uh, we certainly have to pay taxes and uh, serve at jury duty. I think that might be it. <laughs> I mean, you certainly are welcome to do more of service for our for the country, but in terms of actual duties that one is required, I mean, again, you're required to follow our laws, you're required to pay your taxes, you're required to go to jury duty, but, you know, is that really patriotism? I, I would argue yes, because it's our collective way of signing a contract that says, I live here, and of my own free will, I'm choosing to follow the laws here. And I'm patriotic enough to do that. So then there's that. Next down, a little bit deeper, is beyond just duty, it's now the desire to serve. And I'm starting with service in sort of the softer sense. Um, volunteering for public aid. Uh, volunteering your time and your resources. When people do things like AmeriCorps or the Peace Corps. You're serving your country, uh, and it's beyond what you need to do. So that's maybe the next layer, the next sort of level up. That, and then beyond that further would be the willingness to serve all the way to the extent that you would be willing to lay down your life. And people will fight me on this, and that's fine. I think the next layer down is the willingness to constructively criticize your country. 
And yeah, I'm, I'm willing to say that that's even deeper than the willingness to die for it. And again, I'm sure people will disagree with me on that. But I say that because in many respects, it can be much harder to, again, I say constructively criticize your country, not destructively criticize. Anybody can throw a tantrum. Anybody can hold up a sign with insert grievance here. But I mean the willingness to do the hard work of insisting that one's country do better. I say that much, and I also feel that way about parenting. Many parents would be willing to, you know, take a bullet for their kid. It's instinctive. But the willingness to look at one's child and say, I love you, and therefore I'm going to tell you where you're screwing up, and I need you to do better because I know you can do better. I think that might be harder. Again, might be wrong. I bring that up to juxtapose with something like nationalism. Nationalism is identification with one's nation. And here's the extra piece, to the exclusion or detriment of others. So patriotism is enthusiasm for one's country, the willingness to raise a child and, or, or at least be the steward of this child, the child being this thing we've created that is our country. Or maybe I didn't, I certainly didn't help create it, but I'm hoping that when someone passes the baton to me, I don't drop it. Nationalism though, if we're using the analogy of a child, uh, of parenting, of being a steward of something, is sort of like, uh, I'm willing to take from other children to give to mine. I don't care about your children. I care about mine. Back off. I'm the best, I'm the greatest, and I'm willing to destroy you if you come in the way of my victory. Nationalism is patriotism's evil twin, the dark underbelly of enthusiasm for one's country. And I'm thinking about all of these things for what I imagine are obvious reasons. I'm watching my country turn into something that has started to look like nationalism instead of patriotism. I'm, I'm watching my, my republic. Um, I can't really say that it's turning into something else yet, but I'm seeing the beginnings. I think America right now needs to start eating a healthy dose of humble pie. Even though intellectually I have known, especially in my studies when looking at other countries that devolved into, I mean, I, I almost hate to bring up Hitler because he's such that he's so overused. But when you see a, a country like Germany, here's, here's where I'm going with, with Germany. I mean, they had some of the most high-minded you know, judges, uh, philosophers, statesmen, on the planet, I mean, they were celebrated for what the kinds of people, the kinds of citizens who were educated in and came to power in Germany. So for it to have devolved into something where a person like Hitler could step up and, not alone obviously, the Nazis in support of him could follow suit and do some very serious damage. There's always that emotional repulsion. There's that sense of, yeah, but that's 
that's wild. That could never happen here, which of course is absurd because it can happen anywhere because all countries are made up of human beings <laughs> and humans are flawed. That's just reality. So of course, any country can devolve into mayhem. That includes everyone, not just special people. And I want to be clear here, I'm not likening Trump to Hitler. I'm not trying to go there. I'm likening the circumstances of where we as a nation are right now to the circumstances that Germany was in in the 1920s leading up to what ultimately became World War II. I'm looking around and I'm seeing the signs of potential for something really dark to happen. And that's not to say, of course, that what happened on Wednesday wasn't in and of itself really dark. But I can get so much worse real fast. And that's terrifying. So then that, of course, brings me into, well, what are, what are the answers to all of this? How do we, I mean, because nobody wins with the United States in conflict with itself. Nobody. I say that not because I personally feel like I'm a self-important person due to having been an American. I'm saying that logistically, you do not want to have a country who happens to have the biggest arsenal of weaponry in mayhem. You just don't. <laughs> you can't have it. The whole world could fall apart. Which now, of course, could lead itself. We could then go down the rabbit hole of saying, well, this now begs the question about whether or not we should be the ones with the biggest military, considering you know, just how dangerous could this be, etc., etc. That's a whole nother podcast. All I'm going to say is, the reality is here we are, we are the United States of America. We've got a whole lot of guns. We've got a whole lot of things that can make other things go boom. And we are falling apart, question mark? What? This cannot happen. So every one of us inside of our borders, as well as outside of our borders, has a vested interest in us getting our, forgive my language, shit together. Because we are not there. We are oh so very lost right now. And the temptation is to blame people, to blame one singular entity. It's all the liberals' fault because Antifa is tearing us apart. No, it's all the Proud Boys' fault because their white power policies, or at least the policies they would like to have pass, it, it is deplorable. They are the deplorables. No, wait, just kidding. It's Trump's fault. No, wait, just kidding. It's Mitch McConnell's fault. Oh, no, wait, just kidding. It's, it's real easy to go there. It's satisfying to go there. And of course, the reality is all of that stuff is symptomatic of something else. Something bigger, something in the undercurrent of all of this. At least it, it, it seems to me like it would have to be, that would have to be the case. Anyone who's done any real digging into what happened, say, in World War II, yeah, sure, there's the superficial story of, oh, big bad dude, come up, he get lots of thugs, and then country go bad, you know, country go boom. 
that's not how it worked. It was this gradual process that was extremely complicated. And it was, you had World War One, which then you know, multiple nations basically put all of the cost, the burden to bear the cost onto Germany. And then you ended up with a country that was poor and demoralized. And then here comes this movement led by a man who says, we can do better, we can be great again. And yes, I do think that was the rhetoric used at the time. My fear isn't that, oh, well, Trump is basically Hitler then because he also used the terminology, we should make America great again. I don't care about your stupid MAGA thing. I don't care if you're saying, yes, we can, or make America great again. That's not the problem. The problem is something else. What is the something else, though? Well, you've got plenty of people who are speculating. And I think every single person has a piece of the puzzle. Every single person. Many people have a piece of the puzzle is probably a better way of putting it. So one piece of what's going on is income disparities between people. You're in a situation where the rich really and truly are getting richer and the poor really and truly are getting poorer. And that divide, even though on the whole, because I want to be clear here, I am not anti-capitalist. I love my coconut water and I'm very attached to my smartphone. I have zero sense of direction, ladies and gentlemen, zero, less than zero. In fact, I have reliably bad sense, like I have a reliably bad sense of direction. You can almost set your watch to, or a compass to rather, Leo, which direction should we go in? And if I point to one instinctively, you should probably just try going the opposite and the likelihood that you successfully make it to your destination is at least greater than 50%. (laughs) So I love having a smartphone to guide me. That would not be possible, at least not in so much as I have it in my midst now, without capitalism. And anyone who tries to tell me that capitalism is the root of all of our evils, I I will happily go toe-to-toe with and I will debate them until I, 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 will, I will simply outstand them. <laughs> so, and not because I think capitalism is the be-all end-all. Maybe there's something even better that we haven't figured out yet. That's possible. But it's the best thing I've seen so far, especially when married to a democracy. Easy for me to say, though, I've had a relatively good life so far with hardships like most people on the planet. But... You know, I've benefited from it, so maybe that's just easy for me to say. Nevertheless, I say all of that to say, I'm not trying to say, oh, we need to dismantle capitalism. Rather, I'm looking around and saying, I I don't know what the answer is, but the way we're doing capitalism right now, it, it may... Be, may have gone too far. We may need to add some tools into our toolbox to make this thing stick. I, I don't know what those tools are. I've heard some people advocate for things like universal basic income. Not because we absolutely need it or we absolutely don't need it. It's just, well, maybe because we can. People who advocate for things like universal basic income will often say things like, well, here's the thing, guys. Lazy people will find a way to be lazy. And people who are conscientious and hardworking will probably always be conscientious and hardworking. 
the more we understand about psychology, we are increasingly starting to get to a place where we're not entirely sure if, you know, the concept of, well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, that's great in theory, but what if you're genetically predispositioned one way or the other to either be a hard worker and be conscientious and be intelligent and be capable of focusing on an ex for an extended period of time? And maybe there are some other people who don't have that capacity. Should we penalize them? I'm not saying we should or shouldn't, but it's an interesting question. Is meritocracy the best way forward? We've used that so far. Is that the ipso facto way to move forward? I don't know. That's what's wild. Like, that's where we're at right now. I can, people can pose those questions and instinctively I want to say, absolutely meritocracy works. And yeah, capitalist democracy as it is right now is great. Having, but that's easy for me to say. I loved school. My brain soaked information up like a sponge. I didn't earn that capacity. I did work hard in school, but I also really liked it. Much the same way as someone who might have a predisposition toward liking basketball didn't work hard to earn their liking of basketball. They certainly worked hard in practicing to become good. All of this is simply to say, when you have a lot of income disparity, uh, income inequality, you're going to get a psychological mm, trap. The reality is, and this is brought forth by people like Steven Pinker, or was it Steven Pink? Steven Pinker. Anyway, it was called Enlightenment Now. Definitely recommend reading the book. It's great. <laughs> um, but he uses numbers, and I love numbers. Numbers are so good. Numbers are reliable. Numbers are comforting. <laughs> and he maps out just how much better our lives have become over time and makes a case that we are, in fact, in the best time in our world's history. We've had the greatest amount of peace. We have the greatest amount of wealth. The, po the Those in poverty, globally, mind you, have, like, the, the numbers have gone down exponentially. Like, we were able to get the numbers down much faster and at a much lower percentage than we thought possible by this point. That's worth celebrating. So why are we all so pissed off? <laughs> well, part of that is because people have benefited at disproportionate rates. People in extremely poor countries are seeing rapid increases in their, their uh, improvement in lifestyle. And of course, people over here might say, but that's not fair. It's like, well, yeah, but 200% better for them means that they can now have two loaves of bread per week instead of just one. So maybe you can cool it. And just because inflation has hit a little bit here and you ha your wages haven't gone up that much, the you being stagnant and them coming up five notches, on the whole, we all are benefiting greatly because when countries are flush with resources, they're not really on the lookout to steal from others. Kind of a no-brainer, but whatever. That's not how it feels psychologically, though. And also, when you consider the fact that in the United States, you have the ultra-rich accelerating the rate at which they are becoming increasingly wealthy. And then you have a middle class that is starting to hollow itself out. And you have a lower class, and I'm talking purely in numbers, who is growing in number. Even though, on the whole, people like Steven Pinker can say, yeah, maybe, but here's an example of what he 
people in, of his ilk would say, it might be true that your income has not, even when inflation is accounted for and all the things, when all of that is considered, your income has basically not gone up at all. And that sucks. However, what your income can get you now is vastly better than what it could get you 20 years ago. And we're not talking about inflation or income potential exactly. We're talking about things like smartphones being the example I brought up earlier. That was even the wealthiest person in the world couldn't have access to a smartphone 20 years ago because it didn't exist yet. And now people of all economics, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but nearly everyone I know of in the United States of America has access to that kind of technology. That's something that, say, 200 years ago would have looked like magic. <laughs> I mean, because it kind of is. We, If I push a button on this thing that I carry with me wherever I go, I have access to any kind of information that I would could possibly hope to gather. That's pretty nifty. So there is a case to be made that even if we feel like we're stagnating, we're kind of, well, not really stagnating. Having said that, the psychological impact of watching as people that are being televised and having these extravagant lifestyles, while others are struggling, the cost of an education is going up, the cost of housing is going up, all of these things that we became accustomed to are now diminishing. Our, our ability to access it is going down. That is demoralizing. In other words, it feels icky. <laughs> And it's easy to just say, well, tough cookies and deal with it. But that won't solve the issue. People are in pain. And then that's just one piece of it. Add into all of that the fact that we've become increasingly isolated. We, despite the fact that I might love my smartphone, it has many, many shadow sides. Think of all of the kids right now who are noses are stuck in their phones and they seem... Like they are not in, unable, but they have trouble connecting with other human beings. This now brings me into the realm of Tristan Harris, who has a podcast called Your Undivided Attention. He was one of the developers of, I don't know if it was Facebook or Instagram or at any rate, social media, <laughs> I'll just say. And he, along with many of his colleagues, are now trying to get the word out and say, hey, we really need to keep an eye out on the impact of what social media is doing. This I'm bringing all up because it's part of the problem in my mind as it relates to what's happening here in the United States and I would venture to argue globally. We have. It's not that people in my country, <laughs> I don't know about yours, but people in my country it's not that we're disagreeing about solutions. So it's not as though we're all looking at global climate change and saying, what is the solution? We are disagreeing about whether or not it is a problem. It's not that we're looking at uh, you know, a variety of different things. Like, Is police brutality a thing? Is Black Lives Matter really just Antifa coined, you know, folded into a different name? Uh, are we... Are the socialists taking over or is it the white power people taking over? All of this is happening and we are in fundamental disagreement about the facts. So to give you a better analogy, it's almost like we are looking at the sky and having a myriad of different voices saying, no, it's blue. No, it's red. No, it's pink. No, it's green. 
what? <laughs> we're, we're, we're disagreeing about that? We are disagreeing about that. A pandemic is going on and you have some people who are absolutely certain it's a hoax. And you have people who are absolutely certain it is not a hoax. You have people who are absolutely certain that wearing a mask will help protect those around the wearer of the mask. And you have people who absolutely cannot fathom how that would be helpful in any way, shape, or form, and they are certain it does nothing whatsoever to help. It's not like we're all saying, oh, COVID is real and we have to figure out a solution. We are looking at COVID and saying, we're disagreeing on whether or not it's real. This is where we are right now. And anytime you have this degree of fear and uncertainty, the, the desire of human beings is to get close to those in your tribe, to, to bundle in, to go to church, uh, to get spiritual guidance, or to go to family gatherings and hold your family. And for a few blissful seconds, be able to just sigh of oh, relief. And we don't have access to that because there's a flippin' pandemic happening out there. So we've been asked to isolate. And not only that, we're isolating while staring at social media. Now that brings me into how that further tears apart the, the our, our respective realities. It doesn't tear it apart, it divides. So here's an example. If I pick up my smartphone and I type in to the Google webs, uh, news on riots, the first things are gonna, that are gonna pop up for me are the New York Times, the Atlantic and Associated Press. Uh, probably also BBC, because those are the news sources that I value most. Well, someone, a colleague of mine, could put the same thing in her smartphone and look, put that in her Google Webs. We're using the same search engine, but completely different, or just different phones, really. But she will get a completely different set of articles that pop up. It will be prioritized differently. And that has to do with the way that the algorithms are written. We are each, you know, based on the business models of how a lot of this is created, a lot of people don't want to have to pay for access to information. I mean, we pay in so much as we pay for our wireless network, but we're not paying for the information. We used to pay for a newspaper or we had to pay for a subscription where a newspaper would be sent to us. We don't have to do that anymore. But if I'm not paying for it, so I think the, the lingo goes, if you aren't paying for the product, then you are the product. That's the reality. <laughs> I mean, so with Facebook and with many social media networks, they use advertisements to keep their business model alive. Well, advertisers aren't really interested in getting us the truth. They're interested in keeping our attention, which one would hope would be um, compatible. Like people want to know the truth. And so if we advertise to those people who are interested in the truth, naturally that would lead us into, you know, people who are paying more and more attention to news. That's great, right? But no, because that's not what keeps our attention. What keeps people's attention is outrage. And so what do newscasters and media platforms do? Well, they keep the temperature running high. When I was, this was several years ago, I had just ended a relationship with a lovely human. Uh, we, we, it just it was a great relationship and we just parted ways. And then in ending that, I had to move back in with my grandmother, my mom, and my niece. That's right, there were 
four generations of women in the same house. Woo! <laughs> and yet we survived. Anyway, there was a bit of family drama that occurred, because, and it had to do with a custody battle with my niece, and, and there was a lot of emotions that were running high and my sister and myself and uh, my niece's father and all of that. And, and my God, we just kept drove. We were so mad. We were all so self-righteous. We were certain each one of us was correct. And my grandmother and watching me lose my mind said, God, you know, it seems like the problem is these stupid phones that you have. You keep texting each other. She said, in my day, you couldn't keep keeping the pot boiling like this. You, you couldn't do that. You, once you ended the phone call, that was the end of that. And you might stew on it, but it wasn't like they could keep needling you. And at the time, I just remember looking at her and going, Nana, you're a genius. And so then I informed both people, hey, I'm just letting you know, this phone is a phone I use not only for my private life, but also for my business, which I did. That was true. I said, and I'm, I'm realizing that this is a huge distraction. And it's not helping any of us to continue these conversations via text. So I'm blocking both of you uh, because I don't want the temptation of further conversations. But if either of you want to get in touch with me, you can call the landline. You can call that, you know, the house phone and we will have that conversation. And almost immediately there was relief. The sense of rage, of um, disgust, of helplessness just went away just like that just done <laughs> and that was with a family dynamic so with people that I ordinarily have some affinity with I, I have a sense of loyalty to these people I've known them for long periods of time they're not strangers to me and still I fell victim to that that's I mean just wow now take that same little microcosm and imprint it onto how we navigate social media. With social media, we are constantly access, we have, we have constant access to the things that make us feel outraged. And in addition to that, we have our own private, individualized and siloed realities that are getting affirmed over and over and over and over again. So if you have not yet watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix, I would highly recommend watching it and and soon because it really does a deep dive into exactly what's happening with all of this we have people all over the country who are absolutely certain that the biden victory was not in fact a victory and it's not like some tiny little obscure number it's a big number of people i want to say three quarters of those who believe that are republican but that's because the guy who lost was Republican. I'm not necessarily convinced that the Democrats wouldn't have done the same thing. I mean, I, I don't really know. I know that when Clinton lost, she conceded like a big girl. <laughs> um, just like before that, when, you know, Bush versus Gore, Gore eventually said, you know, like, there was one trial in Florida. He said, okay, all right, I lost. And when McCain was, lost against Obama, he like a big boy said, congratulations, Mr. President, I now serve you. Like I, there, in my lifetime, every president who has lost or every candidate who has lost has then turned around to the fellow candidate and, and bowed in some way, shape or form and said, congratulations on your victory. P.S. I hate you. 
but also I will serve you, <laughs> which kind of makes sense because my God, what an exhausting venture to go through and to get to the end of that and not win must be heartbreaking. Um, so I'm not, when I saw tens of thousands of people coming out to hear Trump speak, who they were angry and afraid and didn't know what was coming up next. And I couldn't begrudge them their right to, I don't care if they wanted to come out and protest and, and insist on the fact that the sky's purple. It doesn't matter. As far as I'm concerned, anyone who is willing to take time out of their everyday life and travel, I mean, these people came from all over the United States to have their voices heard. And as far as I'm concerned, the majority of those tens of thousands of people are patriots. They are getting affirmed a reality that I am not getting affirmed. I'm looking at their version of reality, their slice of reality, and thinking you've got to be, you, you've got to have lost your mind with as much enthusiasm as I'm sure they're looking at me when I champion causes like Black Lives Matter and, and saying, you've got to be out of your mind. <laughs> like, what? Sam Harris did in his podcast, did a, you talked about, uh, not tribes, cults. And he said, if you really and truly believe that it was a fraudulent election, you are part of a cult. And on the other hand, if you really and truly believe that all of our country's problems can be traced back to racism and sexism, you too are in a cult. That's not to say that we shouldn't be vigilant about overseeing our elections, nor is it to say that sexism and racism do not exist. Of course they do, and of course they. all these things can be can be looked at and discussed but the 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 vehemence the the insistence and the degree to which people are absolutely certain i mean anyone who tells me that they are absolutely certain about anything immediately sends alarm bells flooding my system because every year that goes by in my life the only thing i can say with any real degree of certainty is that now i can't even say certainty but with any real degree of confidence is I think I've gotten increasingly better at asking good questions. And every time I find a nugget of an answer, it seems to only open up an exponential number of more questions. So the more I've learned, the more I learn that I don't know. So anyone who tries to tell me at any age that they know something to be true, it is very difficult for me to do anything other than, okay, yeah, sure, pal, that's very cute. Yes, sweetheart, I know you know things. It's, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very hard for me not internally not to be patronizing. Because, really, <laughs> can you really be sure? So, again, all of those protesters who came out to support President Trump, he is still the president, uh, I don't begrudge them. If anything, I admire and respect them because they did what is within their legal rights to do. They are angry, they are scared, they want their voice heard, so they went to go and speak. Great, right on. A fraction of a fraction of a fraction of those people, which a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of tens of thousands of people is still gonna be a quite large number, took President Trump's speech uh, very literally it's not really a shocking interpretation but here we have it and they stormed the nation's capital and they got in at <laughs> which i mean my god <laughs> like 
Do you know what an embarrassment? I mean, we have the biggest military on the planet. And don't, anyway, I can't, I can't go there. Anyway. Um, those individuals, I think, deserve, have justly deserved the terms domestic terrorists. Those individuals cannot an entire, you can't use that group and say, oh, they are Trump supporters and therefore all Trump supporters are them. No, no, that's not how that works. Because if I can do that to them, then that's like saying when Antifa takes a milkshake of cement and pours it on the face of a journalist who just so happens to be a conservative-leaning but relatively moderate journalist who has done nothing and in fact was unwilling to put on armor because he didn't want to give the impression that he felt unsafe and didn't want to rally them up and rile them up and when they pour cement on him and assault him and it's proven later that he even incurred a certain degree of brain damage because of it oh no you had better you had better not link me with any of them just because we so we happen to vote for the same president. My hunch is much as many in Antifa don't love Biden, they probably voted for him. That doesn't make me a person of a, like, who has affinity with them. If, like, I have a colleague who, I, I'm not positive that she voted for Trump, but I know at the very least she's a Trump sympathizer because many people in her family voted for Trump. This is a person who is, um, I'm going to call her an untouchable, but in the best way possible. I have yet to see her integrity rust in any fashion. Like that, she is incredibly kind, generous, and she bestows nothing but grace to all those around her perpetually assuming best intentions, perpetually uh, serving others. And if I had to choose, like if two bullets were going to fire and I had to choose between saving my colleague, jumping in front of the bullet for her sake, or jumping in front of a bullet for the sake of anyone in Antifa, it wouldn't be a decision. My muscles would have already begun to run toward my colleague before my conscious brain would have even had an opportunity to think closely about the matter. It would be instinctive because she's my people. And she's my people because she's incredibly thoughtful. And we had really juicy conversations about politics. And she was open and she was curious. And and she even said to me, you know, like, I don't know all of the ins and outs of this. You, you, you have a degree in politics. Can you give me more information about this in a way that doesn't demonize either side? And it's like, I think I can do that. However, do know that I have bias. And I'm going to get to bias in a minute. But I, my people are thinkers. My people are feelers. My people have, will... They may not reliably and consistently use discernment, but they strive for it reliably and consistently. Dems are my people. <laughs> my people are the ones who are thoughtful and nuanced and think things through and who, even if they land on a decision that I disagree with, I cannot question the value and the merit of the process they use to get there. Those are my people. It's why I was so enthusiastic about Obama. I didn't agree with all of the things that he did. I liked his process. 
I liked to watch his brain work, to watch him deliberate. He's my people. And not because he was a Democrat, but because I liked his process. I would say McCain was my people because I liked to watch his process, the way he would navigate, uh, especially serving in the legislative branch of government. I mean, and talk about a patriot. Like, these are my people. And I never met those two in person, so I can't really say for sure. Maybe they're both sociopaths. I mean, I can't know. But based on what I was able to see, that's my assumption about the world. So my office mate, um, she's my people because she cares, she thinks, and she feels. And she's very deliberate in her decision-making. No one on Antifa, so, so far as I've seen, is my people. And certainly no one on the Proud Boys is my people. As far as I'm concerned, the Proud Boys and Antifa are the same person. The only difference is that the Proud Boys have more guns. <laughs> I mean, honestly, they're both so certain that they are right. And they are both dangerously wrong about being right about everything. I'm sure they both have a nugget of truth. But their unwillingness to to give in to the possibility that there could be blind spots in their thinking makes me extremely nervous because anyone who thinks they have no blind spots has a really big blind spot. Anyway, (laughs) all of this is coming to be. And once again, here I am saying, okay, so what does that mean about the problems? Is it all Trump's fault? I mean, I will say this about what, you know, Trump's behavior Someone, an anchor, was it an anchor? No, it was Florida's, it was one of the, one of Florida's house members. I'm not going to remember his name. Oh, what a shame. He was quoted having said that Trump is the most powerful Republican president we've ever seen in the world. And I maybe mixed a few words there, but I know for sure he said the most powerful Republican president. And when he said that, I, my eyebrows cocked up for a minute in, in a little bit of defiance, like, no, and then I had to think about it and go, no, no, actually, you're probably right about that. And that is exactly why I am livid. <laughs> yeah, he is probably the most powerful Republican president we've ever seen. And therefore, he had extreme, like, he, he had an immense responsibility on his shoulders. It was his responsibility to hold that love and affection and power with a lot of discernment, which you can say any, many things about him in his favor, uh, things that I would probably say I didn't like about him, but a number of people really appreciate his sort of bullish tendencies. Some people say say bull and I say bully, but whatever, <laughs> tomato, tomato, I don't know. That's fine. But when you knowingly point a mass of people who are scared and they are angry and they are willing to follow you off a cliff because they love you and you say go that way and you point to my house and then you do nothing while they break my windows yeah you have to pay for the you broke my house you need to pay for it so when I hear that you know people say well you don't want to 
you don't want to intensify the rhetoric or make it you know too loud. And it's like, I don't know what needs to happen, but you've got to be kidding me. If you're going to tell me that the man who signed on the dotted line and said he wanted to be president of the United States of America and doesn't think he should be held accountable for poor performance, not just poor performance, he thinks he shouldn't be held accountable for his role in five deaths countless injuries and the potential slowdown of my the process in my republic oh you've got to be kidding me so i'm not going so far here to say that there are no lines or boundaries or as i've said in other episodes non-negotiables you just don't get to do that whether or not impeachment is the right path or whatever i'm not really sure but anyway so that all happens is it all his fault though He certainly bears a great responsibility. I would say so. And I don't think there's a whole lot of people that would disagree with me. I just don't. Even people who love him or have loved him so far have turned and gone, "Mm, that was bad. (laughs) That was real bad. So now the question becomes, okay, so then what do we do about it? Do we invoke the 25th or do we impeach? So really quickly, to invoke the 25th, means to remove the president. And in order for that to happen, the vice president, along with, I don't know how many members of his cabinet, but many, would all have to kind of come together and say, thank you for your service. The exit is that way. You've been removed. And if that were to take place, not only would Trump no longer be president, but he would also not be permitted to serve as president ever again. That's part of the reason why you have people frothing at the mouth for it, because the real anger behind this man's actions is going to a place of, okay, he does have a lot of support and he's spewing lies. This is their from their point of view. And he's willing to throw rocks at the democracy that he supposedly wanted to serve. We need to make it so that he can't do that again. This is ridiculous. So there's where they're coming from. Um, the 25th doesn't look like it's going to happen. And for reasons that, quite frankly, I understand. I mean, if you're Pence and you're having to make a decision about whether or not to remove a president when he's only got a handful of days left anyway, do you want to set that up as a precedence? Like, what happens when we really don't like another president that comes into the wing? How are we going to define unfit for office? The parameters aren't really clear. So I get why Pence, I appreciate that Pence was very clearly not going to be run over by Trump who insisted that he disqual- like call the election as being fraudulent. And I also have to say I appreciate his position. I would love for him to kick the man out of office, but that's me personally. The fact that he's not doing it, I mean, I get it. Okay, so then the next potential is impeachment. So he was impeached already. This would now be his second. So then... What would that mean? Is it just basically for politics? Kinda. But again, if he were impeached and then also convicted, that would mean that he'd be removed. And of course, he's going to be removed anyway because he was outvoted. Um, Well, if he doesn't... If he gets impeached and then removed in that formal way, that also would bar him from being a viable candidate later. So that's the real objective when you're looking at chess. Um, it's, it's thinking a few moves ahead and thinking, how do we position ourselves so that this doesn't become a threat later? Because he is really good at firing up people and he's shown himself to be 
certainly a compelling person, but not in a way that seems to be very good for our country. He's he's doing things like when he points his finger in the direction of our of the house of our republic, and says, "Yeah, go go you know go hog wild." Do you want somebody like that having a second shot ever? So there you have that. Okay. Now, I also promised a conversation about bias. Because here, you know, I talked a little bit about it with social media. I'm, I'm hinting at it, but I'm not looking at it directly. Uh, if you're at all a fan of... Well, I imagine if you're listening to this podcast, you're a fan of podcasts. Uh, you might listen to a hidden, the, the Hidden Brain. Uh, I think NPR runs it. Uh, the episode I'm looking at was The Double Standard. And he investigated why it might be true that on the one hand, we, we judge our own actions differently than we judge others. And I would go a little bit farther and say we judge the actions of those in our tribe differently than we judge the actions of people in another tribe. And he, the host, pulls in Emily Pronin? Anyway, Emily Pronin, Pronin, don't really know how to pronounce it, sorry, uh, brings up the concept of the introspection illusion. So this is the part, like an hour in, and here I am talking about this. This is the part that I think is the closest to why we're in the hot mess that we're in and the fact that it's fueled by any number of other variables. On an individual level, I, I will, I, me, Leah, (laughs) along with every human on this planet, uh, has a very different set of standards used for my behavior versus that which I apply to other people. It's just human nature. Part of the reason is, well, I have access to all of my thoughts and feelings all the time. So I'm aware of the fact that, you know, my motives were pure or my intentions were good, even if the actions that I took it, you know, I used in order to get the job done, maybe have, were perceived as being abhorrent to someone else. It's like, yeah, 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 but you can't just make me a villain. The, The reasons I did what I did are far more nuanced than you're painting a picture. And yet, I will easily turn to someone like uh, Trump or Pence or Lindsey Graham or what have you, and I'll say, well, let's just look at his actions. His actions are clear. He needs to be punished, period. And someone from their camp, I imagine Trump himself, would have any number of reflections and thoughts and nuanced responses to be able to justify what it is he did. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And people who support him would do something similar because from their view, he is a kind of extension of themselves. It's like, we get each other. He's on my, he's on my team. And that again is human nature. Here's the problem though. It's not just that I'm judging my own behaviors differently than others because I have access to it, all a lot more information. That is part of it. But the other part of it is what she called the introspection illusion. It's the illusion that we actually have 100% access to all of our motives. We don't. And it can be proven that we don't. So we really believe that we know, but we don't know. And she gave examples of, you know, if uh, how do you feel about this policy if it were passed by this person versus that person? 
you know, how do you feel about this versus that? And there's a number of different tests that can be used to show how people are biased, biased uh, when addressing a thin person versus a fat person, a white person versus a black person, a man versus a woman, a woman, a woman. This again, you can you can see it in real time in studies that have been done, and this is just how psychology works. And most, no, 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 not most, and all human beings fall victim to this trap. We all think we have access to all the information. We do not. And the analogy they used in the podcast, I thought was very clever. You know, she said, it's funny, if we have heart disease and then maybe we even have a heart attack and we, we go to the doctor, we don't ever say to the doctor, no, listen, it's my heart. I know what's going on with it. We tend to trust the cardiologist who tells us, no, listen, I, I study this and I, I know about how hearts work and I'm telling you, yours is broken. <laughs> we need to fix it. And in a similar fashion, but when it comes to our brain, we're so sure that we have complete mastery over it. And we really don't, not complete mastery. We might have a measure of influence, but not mastery. And yet when a psychologist tells us that and says, look, I'm, I'm showing you on a brain scan what's going on. I'm showing you in real time I'm with all these different people and how they respond to these questions. I've got the data to prove my point. This is something I study and I know well. We... we Bach. No, I'm, I'm above that. We see biases in other people, but we cannot seem to see biases in ourselves. This is how my family, who are staunch Democrats, can champion someone like Rachel Maddows on MSNBC and be absolutely certain that those icky-wicky you know, anchors on Fox News are so biased, and how could anyone not see it? And... In the same fashion, someone on Fox News, or not someone on Fox News, someone who's, uh, who leans conservatively, maybe a Trump supporter. And again, I'm not talking about the people who stormed the Capitol building. They were a special brand of awful, and they were domestic terrorists. I'm not going to link them with Trump supporters, because Trump's, like, yes, it's true that those domestic terrorists also supported Trump. But that does not mean that all Trump supporters are domestic terrorists. In the, same in the same way that, yes, it's true that people who are in Antifa probably supported Biden, maybe not enthusiastically, but they nevertheless did support him over Trump. But that does not make me an Antifa representative. It simply does not. <laughs> so I want to be clear about that. But people on both sides, it's very easy for each of us to see the bias present in someone else because we're looking at their behaviors. We're looking at how they're justifying their behaviors. And it's so clear, but we often, almost always fail to see our own biases. I, the people that I love most tend to be smart people because, and well, Maybe I shouldn't say smart, because then that assumes that people I don't love are not smart. I think it's more that I happen to become enamored with thoughtful people. People who take their time in making decisions. Uh, people who can reason their way through their thought processes. Uh, my boyfriend is an example of this. He's brilliant. And I love listening to him describe the way he thinks. And I, it's like I get a, a preview into the way his mind works. And... There are things that he says, though, that I, I can't help but notice. It's like, there's bias there. 
Just like there are things I say that I know are rich with bias, oozing with it. I mean, just as an example, uh, I've, I've told you about my bias. I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of Trump. I think that Lindsey Graham is basically the Peter Pettigrew of the Congress. Like, he's like Wormtail and Harry Potter. Like, he'll go to whoever he thinks will protect him. I will tell you, I was actually kind of gratified to see him distance himself from Trump. Not because I thought that made him less cowardly, but because I felt like, okay, well, if he thinks that's the route to go to survive, that's a good sign. <laughs> anyway, that's my opinion. I've never met Lindsey Graham, never sat and had a conversation with Lindsey Graham. I don't know the inner workings of his inner soul. I don't have that kind of access. And even if I did, even if I were able to get an opportunity to walk in his shoes as himself, I wouldn't even have access to the inner workings of his inner soul as him. I just have access to more information than if I wasn't in his own skin. That's all. <laughs> so in these conversations that I'm having with people that I love and I admire and I respect, I'm watching our own biases unfold. And all I can think is, here we are, attempting with everything we've got to be as clear-minded as we can. And we are still struggling. I mean, in his mind, he said, those people who stormed the Capitol are traitors. And anyone who voted for this man voted for that. Maybe they themselves didn't storm the Capitol, but they voted for a man who let it happen, who invited it, who encouraged it, who incited it. Therefore, they are traitors. And I couldn't help but then say, I mean, one man's traitor is another man's rebel, or even perhaps another man's patriot. And he, of course, had an excellent point. His point was, okay, but where do you draw the line? You have to draw the line somewhere. Which, again, echoed my episode on you know non-negotiables. There has to be a boundary somewhere. There has to be a point where, okay, you, you, you must stop here, and then you need to defend that line. And that, I think, is perhaps the tragedy of where our democracy, or our republic, rather, is at. It's like we're playing tug-of-war, which was all well and good. You have left and right, and they're, they're playing a good game of tug-of-war, and sometimes the Democrats would pull the rope over to their side, and then the Republicans would rally and then pull the rope over to the other side, and, you know, it's all... I mean, I, I'm going to call it a game, and yeah, the stakes are high, but for the most part, up until more recently, it has appeared as though the line at least was clear, and there was a bit of an ebb and flow. And I think increasingly, if we're using the analogy of tug-of-war, what's happening is you have the left and the right, and they're pulling with all of their might, and that rope's not going anywhere. And in addition to that, the line is obscured. So it's not even entirely clear at what point the other side has been pulled over across some mythical line of, okay, well, now you're on our, like, now you have to come onto this side. And instead, the rope that is our republic is fraying. So we've got to figure out how to, how to democracy better real fast, because the way we're doing it isn't sustainable. And the tools we have to deliberate are flawed. That's not to say they're not worthwhile, but just that they are flawed. So I was listening to an anchor on Fox News because, you know, entertainment. <laughs> and to be clear, so are the 
people anchors on MSNBC or, you know, it's real easy to see which way people are skewing. And so anyone who tries to tell me that any human on this planet is without bias is insane. Maybe not insane, but mm, what's the word? Ignorant? Anyway. Um, and there was a judge. What was her name? Judge Julie, I want to say. I don't know if she was, I, I, I don't know enough of her history. Judge Janine? Yeah, I think it was Judge Janine. At any rate, she was speaking uh, about freedom of speech. She had written a book uh, that was talking about how people who are poor and people who are wealthy have two widely different experiences of the criminal justice system. And she was saying, well, now there's not even poor and rich. It's left and right. And they have totally different views on the legal justice system. And I'm thinking about it and going, well, I don't know that you're wrong. But I, of course, was thinking about it in my way, and she was thinking about it in hers. In her mind, we are far more lenient on those who protest on the left than we are on, on conservatives. We, you know, oh, we, we think that they should have, you know, lots of space and we're going to let them get away with it. Versus when conservatives do it, we have this zero tolerance policy. And of course, from my view, it's like, I'm sorry. I think if the hands that were scaling our nation's capital had happened to have been brown, there would have been blood. So I, I agree with you. I think there are two different legal justice systems, but I'm inclined to think that the conservative, I shouldn't say conservative, that's not even really, uh, the domestic terrorists who scaled those walls and caused the damage that they caused, I, uh, <laughs> I thought they were treated with a great deal of discernment and respect under the circumstances. So here she is, Judge Janine, and here I am, and I'm listening to her and I'm watching my system get hijacked and just be like, no, you're wrong. You're just wrong. You don't know things. You're dumb. You've got to be kidding. And it's like, oh, yeah, there it is. <laughs> there it is. And I know this. I've read books on this. And still it happens to me. And still I find myself getting swept up in the tide of wanting to, clarity, of wanting to have the sweet satisfaction of pointing to someone else and say, it's your fault, your problem, your mess. Guys and gals, however you want to self-identify, this is our fault. We all did this. All of us. We have co-created the world that we are living in now. And as far as I'm concerned, the answer, the real answer, is that we are all making the mistake of criticizing our neighbor's front lawns without first assuring that our backyards are in order. We need to switch that around. That's probably my favorite line, and it came from a friend of mine. And she said, you know, you, you better make sure your backyard is immaculate before you make any commentary on your neighbor's front lawn. Um, we're not doing that. We're all pointing at everyone else and insisting that they have immaculate, quote-unquote, yards. And meanwhile, our backyards are a mess. But we don't want anyone else to know that. We, if we are going to survive this thing, we're going to need to get very, very creative about how we move forward. You know, in Judge Janine's case, I appreciated that 
before she went on to talk about how there are two legal systems, the left and the right, and the right get hit harder, which again, I disagreed with, but whatever. She was on a, she was vehement in her expression of disgust for what happened on the Capitol. And I respect why she was so angry. She was pretty clear as conservative. And she said, you have given the other side the moral high ground. Now, everything that those other Trump supporters stood for is basically rendered mute, not moot, mute, as in their voices will no longer be heard because all the country will be thinking about is what the hand, well, not handful, but the small percentage of that whole horde of people decided to do. And she was not wrong. And the level of fury and disgust that she felt in watching it is the level of fury and disgust I feel when I see people like Antifa members throwing pavement milkshakes onto reporters. It's that sense of, oh, no, you are not on my team. Get off my team. I'm not into it. I'm not interested in what you have to say anymore. You have corrupted something we've all as a, we've collectively on this side of the, the debates have worked really hard to, to build. You've corrupted it. You've, you've fractured it. It's your fault, and I'm angry. And it's just like, wow. I, I could see her humanity in that moment of just, how dare you? The fear and the fury. And I thought, I, she has some opinions that are different than mine, but I've seen that expression she's giving on the reflection in the mirror that I see when I think about these things. We are both human beings, she and me. And I would be willing to bet that if she and I were to get sat down on a table somewhere and were asked to have a conversation, that we probably would agree on a lot more things that we disagree on. Just as an example, she talked about uh, censorship. Because as many of you may know, Trump was booted off of Twitter and Facebook and like. And I'm, I understand why people are... Uh, nervous about that in terms of the long-term implications. I do get it. And it's really hard for me to be anything other than, oh, jubilant. Because I'm angry at a man who had a lot of responsibility to take care of his country, and he didn't. And not only that, he did real damage. And it's like, yeah, you deserve to pay for that. So I'm when I see that come up, in my mind, it's like, well, yeah, that's obvious that they can do that. They're allowed. These are private companies. So as an example, the, let's say that I go on to go into a mall. Now, mall is even a little bit tricky because then there's multiple businesses. Um, well, I don't know, actually. Maybe there is something to be said for that. Yeah, let's use that. So let's say that I go into a shopping mall, you know, because we're no longer in COVID and it's a magical place where there's rainbows that have pots of gold on the end of them and unicorns roam. Uh, and I've decided I'm going to go shopping. And there's a myriad of different stores in that I can shop in. As soon as I walk into that space, I'm walking into private property. Even when I haven't actually gone into a physical store, even when I'm just in like perusing in this larger building that I can then from the, the walkway go into stores inside of it. So Forever 21 or Charlotte Russe or Brookstone or whatever. So I have private property that someone somewhere owns and that he's then probably renting out space for these other private companies 
to do they sell their merchandise. Now, if I walk into that building and I yell fire, <laughs> which this is the classic example, turns out I'm not allowed to do that. Uh, any security officer could escort me out of the building and say, uh, yeah, you're not allowed to do that and uh, we are no longer going to let you come back in here. Bye. And that person could rant and rave about, <clears throat> you know, their freedom of speech being violated, but the government would say, nah, tough cookies, man. You don't get to yell fire in a building. And you certainly don't get to say that it was foul play on the, in the, you know, like the mall did something bad to you. You were on private property. Okay, so that's the example that's pretty cut and dry, but we can go further. Now let's say instead that this person came in and, oh, let's see, brought their stereo and a speakerphone and was yelling and, and screaming about his or her political views and said, this is ridiculous and I don't like it. A security officer, if called by whomever it is that owns that building, could still come over and say, you've we're going to escort you out of the building and you could scream and shout and kick and cry and say well but this is my freedom of speech it's like yes you do have the right to freedom of speech and you are welcome to speak freely on the other side of that door you are not on public property right now you are on private property and i represent the interests of this private property owner and he or she has determined that what you are doing is not in accordance with what we have determined is appropriate so you gots to go. <laughs> um, you, when you, upon entering this building, signed a contract unbeknownst to you that you would comply with the rules and regulations of this building and you haven't, so you gots to go. So Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, social media is a bit like that. Uh, they are private entities, but instead of physical spaces, they are virtual spaces. So Trump has done something that's in violation of the policies and procedures that you have to check off in a box when you decide you want to participate in this particular social media platform. And so that social media platform is entitled to refuse service to anyone that they don't want to serve, just as a restaurateur is allowed to refuse service to anyone they don't want to serve. That's just facts. That's how that works. Now, in terms of the spirit of the law, Conservatives right now are saying, whoa, you are going way too far, because not only was Trump taken off Twitter, there were a multitude of other platforms that also barred him for life, mind you, not just until the duration, you know, the rest of his presidency, but for life. And beyond that, so then Trump has decided to go to a different platform, the name of which I actually don't remember, which, mm, sorry about that. And now the Apple Store has removed that particular platform as an option to download. So conservatives are saying, okay, maybe this is all legal technically because we haven't figured out how to create laws around it and regulations that we can and, you know, push onto this. But the spirit of the constitution has been violated and we all need to get on board with this. And she was insistent. And as I'm watching, it's like, I get your point of view. I currently I'm too busy celebrating the fact that a man who incited violence at my house um, doesn't get to do it anymore. I'm too busy being happy about that. But there is a point to be had that, okay, well, today it's him. Tomorrow, who is it going to be next? I get that. So that's a perfect example of the ways in which our biases come into, the, come into play. I'm there's no potential for either her or me to be completely objective. 
So the answer to this, as I said before, is not to continue to look to, in this case, Justice Janine, or, you know, I can rant and rave about members of Congress that I really dislike. The fact of the matter is, by the way, over 100 members out of the 535, over 100 House reps, and then I think it was six senators, voted to have a debate about the validity of the election. That's, what, 20%? <laughs> like, that is not a small number. That is not a handful of human beings. That's a large number. And I'm angry at them. But am I really? Or am I angry at something else? I'm angry at something else. I'm angry at our decreasing ability to have conversations with each other. And our inability to have conversations with each other, I think, go right back to our inability to take a good hard look at ourselves. And I, I mean that. My mom used to tell me, hey kid, before you point a finger at somebody else, be very careful because there's three pointing back at yourself. We love accusing other people of that which we ourselves commit. In the Bible, I think, I don't remember the exact verbiage, but Jesus says, let he who hath committed no sin cast the first stone. And no one finds themselves in a position to be able to cast any stone, remarkably, because none of us is without sin. There are people in my life that I have hurt, and I am absolutely certain I was in the right. And they are absolutely certain that I was in the wrong. And there's no getting out of that. The best we can do is be open to having a conversation and to rehumanizing each other. And I'm not saying this to, you know, say, oh, we should all just sing Kumbaya. No, I'm saying we need to have really hard conversations with each other. We need to be aggressively curious, not now aggressive. Like we need to be viciously critical of our own ideas, not of ourselves. I'm not saying we need to be shaming ourselves, but we need to go in and like comb all of our ideas and thoughts with a fine tooth comb. I think Jordan Peterson's view on this was he said, you know, make sure your own house is in order before you start going picking at other people. Same idea. It's real easy to assume that I know stuff and that you have been manipulated. You are stupid. You are evil. And then sit down and have a conversation. Watch how fast that reality unravels. I've had conversations with multiple Trump supporters, which is by no means a large proportion of the 75 million. I mean, I imagine a good chunk of those folks weren't necessarily wildly enthusiastic about him, but just really thought he was a better option than Biden. Just as there was a chunk of people who weren't wildly enthusiastic about Biden, but certainly thought that that was a better option than Trump. That's a thing. Whatever. Um, every time I've had a conversation with someone, I'm trying to think if there's an exception. There probably has to be. No. There hasn't. Every single time, there have been points where I've disagreed with the person in front of me, but it has been impossible to be blind to their humanity. It's really hard to hate people up close. Sociopaths notwithstanding. <laughs> and in order to have those really tough conversations, we have to be willing to hold ourselves in check. I've, in those conversations I've had with people that differ in their opinions from, you know, their, their opinions are different from my own. 
I, the amount of energy that has gone into those conversations is, oh, it's a lot. It's really hard work. And there hasn't been a single time that I didn't walk away thinking that was the right decision. Combat is sometimes appropriate. I'm not a peacenik where I'm thinking, no, war is never the answer. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is war should at the very least be the last possible response. Doesn't that seem obvious? And in the same way, the stripping of each other's humanity needs to be the last possible response that we have. Otherwise, we have all lost. Because again, in that game of tug of war, we can be certain that what we're pulling that rope toward, our, you know, why we're pulled, the reason that we're pulling that rope so hard, we can feel like we have the moral high ground. That's not really going to matter that much, though, when the rope breaks and we all will fall because we're all pulling so hard. If we can't figure this out, if we can't get our shit together, <laughs> we will all lose. And it won't matter anymore who was right. It just won't. We'll have to start over. And maybe that's what's going to have to happen. I don't know. I hope not. Because I don't like the idea of war. I'm, I'm super selfish. I, I appreciate having food in my refrigerator and electricity that keeps it running. I like having a roof over my head because it rains a lot in Oregon, damn it. And I don't want to have to sleep in the rain. And I would really like for there to be fewer people who have to sleep in the rain due to homelessness. I would like all of those things to happen. I think, I think we've got a foundation of something really good and that's worth defending. I think we just need to figure out what defending it means and what it looks like. And we need to stop seeing each other as other. You know, when I saw those people scaling the walls... I wasn't angry and sad because those weren't the, you know, I, they, they were aliens to me. I was angry and sad because I thought, shit, those are my countrymen. In the same way that I had to feel that way about those in Antifa. It's like, God damn it, I don't, that's not what I want. I have to admit that those are part, like, those people are part of my human species. <laughs> like... And by extension, I've got to be willing to dive deep and acknowledge that there's a part of myself, that they represent a part of myself. And that's probably why I'm so angry. A part of me wants to scale the walls of the nation's capital and grab one of the, you know, grab a congressman and shake them by the shoulder and say, what are you doing to my country? That's me too. I'm not doing it because that's ineffective, stupid, cruel, and wrong. But I get the desire. I mean, when I watched those faces and I watched the look of triumph on their faces when they were, when the doors were basically held open as they sort of trickling out of the building, and I wasn't there in person, I only get to see snippets, I acknowledge that, but nevertheless, I was seeing red and I thought, I wanna see blood. <laughs> like, that's in me. That violent desire to destroy, to outmatch, to outmaneuver, to throw down and say, uh-uh, I will out-alpha you. That desire, that is inside of me. And if we're going to get through this thing successfully, we've got to first, before going and trying to fix everyone else, we have got to be willing to, to look hard at ourselves. 
otherwise we all lose we just do you know i'm there's two things i maybe want to end with and i feel like i use these voices a lot so bear with me but um you know research lisa feldman baron is lisa feldman barrett is someone that i reference frequently and she's done a bunch of research on emotions and how they're made. She, in fact, wrote a book called How Emotions Are Made. And she said, as I've mentioned before, that brains are good. They're basically budgeting machines that are perpetually looking at every event that's coming our way and trying to make a prediction about how much energy our system will need to have on hand to face what we're about to face. So it's looking at our past experiences, assessing the current experience we're having, and making a prediction about the neck that about the you know upcoming future and then saying okay based on what we've learned from our past this current dynamic that we're in now tells me that the way you should behave is boom well unfortunately uh i don't know anybody who's ever survived a global pandemic uh or you know uh, ecological mayhem or the economic downturn that I mean, we're in kind of right now, but I think a real one is coming. Not all at the same time. And quite frankly, we've, we haven't, this is brand spanking new territory for most of us. I think all of us, <laughs> at least in our lifetime. So our poor brains are desperately trying to make predictions that they can't make because we don't have any past experiences to really properly inform us on what to do. So where do we want to go? Well, as Brene Brown likes to say, when things feel scary and uncertain, we, we're exhausted and we just want to tap out. And we want, when someone comes around and wants to sell us the snake oil of certainty, we want to jump right on top of that. And there are people who right now are trying to sell us the snake oil of certainty. And it is, that's exactly what it is. It is snake oil. It's not going to get the job done. Oh, but do we want it? Oh, but don't we want it though? And so when Lisa Feldman Barrett is saying like, you know, our poor brains are struggling, she goes further to remind us that the things that are the most expensive in terms of energy for our brains uh, is movement and learning something new. And learning something new, FYI, includes Empathy, the ability to put ourselves in another person's shoes and try and imagine what their experience might be like. That's expensive, she tells us all. And we're exhausted. So we don't have that kind of capacity right now. It's part of why the more afraid we become, the more constricted our ability to engage with people who have different opinions becomes. It's a spiral. We become increasingly fearful, which means we become increasingly aggressive. And the more aggressive we become, the more fear we promote, and so on it goes. And I'll end with the line where an author is speaking to a healer. And I've used this many times before. You're probably tired of hearing it. But she says to him, why is the world so crazy like this? And he says, because man is God, man is demon. Both true. And she says... So what's the answer? How do we fix this? There's got to be a way to fix it. And he says, no, you can't fix it. You can't do anything about this. Fix you. You must fix you. And he wasn't saying, ah, que sera, sera, man, <laughs> no big deal, who cares? But it was really going back to, you just simply don't have enough control over what's going on out there. The only real 
like reliable influence you've got is on what's happening inside of you. And if we all cumulatively, universally stopped using magnifying glasses and started using mirrors, we might build on the capacity to have real communication with other people. And that's what we need right now because as you know, the kinds of people who are hopeful are often intellectual uh, titans. You know, Lex Friedman is a podcaster I love listening to, and he's hopeful as much as, as intelligent as he is, his intelligence is not matched with cynicism, but hope. And part of the reason he's able to maintain that semblance of hope is because he's willing to have conversations with people and he remains open. And he, you can feel the sense that he has of, you know, let's just assume best intentions. That's what we need to be doing right now. And it's hard. It's the hardest thing we're ever going to do. But if we don't do that, if we aren't willing to do that for each other, again, the rope that this democracy, like we're all holding a rope, it's fraying. It's going to break. And no one wins with a broken America. I, I want to end with something light. Um, I want to end with hope and delight. I don't know how much delight I can bring, but I will tell you this. As dark as the times feel out there, sort of in service to my philosophy around, you know, look closer to home for comfort, for, uh, you know, fix what's close to you rather than always assuming you need to fix what's out there. I was in my office and I was talking to my colleagues and that one of the days we, I was just, well, I don't know how to put it nicely. I was pissy. I was in a bad mood and they could feel it. And I just sort of voiced it and said, listen, I'm really, I'm sorry. I'm not, I, I want to be clear. I'm not unhappy about the workload. I don't like, I'm feeling burned out, but not because this job is burning me out life is starting to make me feel burned out. <laughs> like, this is hard. This is exhausting. And I'm extremely lucky. I'm probably one of the luckiest. And I know that. And even I am exhausted. And I have resources to keep me afloat. I can only imagine how other people are feeling right now. And I said that. And I said, as grateful as I am for everything I have, there are days where I'm just angry and I'm tired and I'm sad. But don't worry, I'm going to get happy in the same pants I got mad in. <laughs> um, and they just held the space for me. And we had this really beautiful conversation where we all said, yeah, I think we're all tired. We all want something to look forward to. We all want something to feel like we're going to get a release. And we don't see that yet. So I think we all just need to bestow an awful lot of grace for each other. And that was more than enough. That was... The thing, like the starting point of the, the shifting of the tide. Just a person to hear me and say, I, I hear you, man. This is rough and it's okay. You can have a really shitty day today. It's fine. Like, just remember this because it, it may be me tomorrow. <laughs> and maybe give me a little grace when that happens. And I will tell you that my friends and my family have been extraordinarily kind. They check in on me and we have conversations that are hard, but mostly are just lovely. And I get to spend weekends with my beloved and it's glorious to have time that goes by where I'm not worried about anything. I'm too busy being delighted 
by this person in my life that I feel at ease with and feel like I'm equal parts melting and floating. That's such a great experience. That's the stuff of life. You know, the making of a, a lovely meal, the sharing of time with a person we care about. So even amidst all of this, there is still plenty of room for delight and for gratitude. So my hope for you in listening to this, this very long episode, uh, is that when you walk away, you think to yourself, you're willing to give yourself a lot of grace. And if at all possible, you can do your patriotic duty and give other people around you a lot of grace as well. When I started the conversation, I told you about my, my definition of patriotism and how there are all these layers. And I said, yeah, we're starting with, you know, the superficial, like, the flag, and the next is duties, like, you know, pay your taxes, do your jury duty. And then it goes further into maybe service, and then beyond that, active service, being, being willing to lay down your life for your country, and then beyond that, even being willing to be constructively critical of your country and, and say, hey, I know you can be better. Like, we, we can rise beyond the current level. And now I want to add the ability to extend a lot of grace to your fellow countrymen. Without that, what's the point? So grace for you, <laughs> grace for your fellow people, and may you have a deliciously boring coming week. <laughs> may it be delightfully uneventful. Yeah, that's, that's my shout out. That's my hope. <laughs> Here's my wish. <laughs> Take good care.